The word suffragette did not come about until 1906. It was coined as an insult by the Daily Mail. In homes where people did a lot of their own cooking, that was the greatest kind of predictor of the health outcomes in the home, actually. So simply cooking for yourself seems to be um, a good way of keeping yourself quite healthy. So another great year from Salon London in which we've worked with hundreds of new speakers, putting them and their big ideas into unusual places. And we're celebrating all of that with our Transmission Prize now in its glorious third year. Uh, (laughs) Won by Claudia Hammond in its first year and Professor David Nutt last year, both of whom are doing rather well. Do you think their ongoing success has a little to do with our Transmission Prize, Juliet? Well, I think they are both brilliant examples of people who communicate ideas in a captivating and relevant way. And that's exactly what we're celebrating with the Transmission Prize. And as you say, we're now in our third year. And this is the first of three podcasts where we will summarise the biggest, boldest and the most beautiful ideas that we encountered in Salon London during the past year. We will be awarding the prize on the 12th of February, which is open to all, at the elegantly revamped Foyles Bookstore. And you can get your tickets from salon-london.com. So we are not technically a book prize, and yet all of our shortlisted writers have got books out. Were you surprised when you saw the shortlist, Juliet? I think it's a very strong list, and I think what makes the Transmission Prize different is that it's the communication of a brilliant idea that's important. And actually books are still a fantastic way of communicating ideas, it's just that we're also interested in how this translates to a live audience. I really do love the fact that we're not an actual book prize and yet it does seem that a book is still a very effective way of getting your point across when it's coming to big ideas and I can almost hear publishers breathing a collective sigh of relief there. (laughs) It's probably a good time to take a look at our shortlist for the Transmission Prize 2015. We've been taking a really good look at the author neuroscientist Charles Ferniehow, the author and biographer Lucinda Hawksley and the social media think tank analyst Jamie Bartlett. We've also been looking at the philosopher and writer Julian Bugini, entrepreneur, CEO and author Margaret Heffernan, statistician and the Winton Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk, Sir David Spiegelhalter, and science writer, author and journalist Zoe Cormier. So, Lucinda Hawksley, she was part of a salon we put on for Bath Literary Festival about the political and social landscape leading into the Great War. Lucinda's book March Women March documents the 60 years of political treachery it took to get women the vote. It's a beautifully researched book and um, the panel felt it was necessary for a book like this to exist because it helps us to put into context the first wave of feminism when you're looking at later uh, waves of feminism. Lucinda is a great writer and she doesn't shy away from the brutality and the horror of the Votes for Women story or the fact that so many women were actually in the anti-suffrage movement. A particularly terrifying strapline of theirs being, don't give us the vote, we're slaves to our hormones. These suffragettes took actions daily, which are the contemporary equivalent of telling your boss to get knotted before setting fire to his passport. It was a shock to realise that all these genteel women in hats with waspish waists had to use the tactics of terrorism to get what they wanted. They fought tooth and nail, enduring torture and police brutality, just so we can complain that there's no one worth voting for. What a great book for election year. A bit of historical context doesn't half make you grateful for what you've got. And here's a bit from Lucinda herself. Um, and they would, there was one wonderful story when Sylvia got imprisoned as a result, where a group of suffragettes, including Sylvia, were on trial. And they were all found guilty, and they were waiting in a room adjacent to the court. And one of their friends in the suffrage movement managed to get them all out. Um, they escaped, and then she locked the, pr- the policeman inside. 
And they were so incensed that Sylvia was, was seriously sent to jail that time. But they did some wonderful things. It wasn't all about angry, violent actions. Some of their campaigns were incredibly witty. Uh, one of my favourites who I couldn't find a picture of was Flora Drummond, known as The General. She had great ideas, and uh, she, was, she had a lot of support around the country. She became quite a figurehead. One company, for example, they, um, they sent her an entire pristine white general's uniform in, a, in female style with a skirt instead of the trousers, with gold braiding and the word the general um, embroidered across the breast. And uh, she wore it with pride, and she had wonderful ideas. One of them was to hire a boat and to take it into the middle of the Thames with a megaphone in front of the Houses of Parliament and to harangue Parliament. If they couldn't be heard in Parliament, they would be heard from the outside. And as Lucinda has never been on the Salon London stage, she'll be talking to us about March Women March on the 12th of February. On to Julian Bergini. He, of course, was on our shortlist for Year One when he explored the idea of who we are as not being quite how we are with the ego trick. Now, philosophy is a difficult one for us because you often get the sense in the room that people are thinking, but where are the facts? And Julian, this time around, has turned his philosophical eye onto our complicated relationship with food. In his book, Virtues of the Table, he drills down into how we produce, consume and relate to food and what this says about us both individually and as a society. And it's the ethical questions that he forces you to grapple with that are what really makes it for me. This is summed up, really, in the quote by Briat Savarin, who's a great French writer, who said... Animals feed, but man eats, right? This is the difference. We don't just feed. Eating for us, he says, only a man of intellect knows how to eat. Eating as a human being is something we bring our whole selves to, mind, body, heart, and soul. And for that reason, uh, if you want to think about how we ought to live, I think it's totally appropriate to think about the philosophy of how we ought to eat as well. It's an incredible book that knocks down our pretensions of what is good, he shows that there is so much more to what, how and why we eat what we do, which is quite unsettling. And here he is on the value of blind tastings. It applies to ev everything. I mean, in, in blind tasting conditions, all sorts of things happen which make some people go, aha, you see, you're, 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 you're a sucker. So lots of people try and do tests where they uh, give you a, just a normal, you know, eggs from the supermarket shelves compared against your lovely free-range one from the farm down the road. And a lot, a lot of the times in that situation, people can't taste the difference. They really can't taste the difference. There's one food blogger who did a quite ingenious version of this experiment. They did a, they did a, a, a tasting, and, and, and people did um, get a bit of difference. But what he realised was that the, the free-range eggs actually had a darker yolk. So there's a visual clue. And he thought, well, what happens if I get rid of that visual clue? So we added a flavourless dye to both sets of eggs. And in that situation, there's only one person who would distinguish the free-range ones from the other ones. Now, again, does that mean we're wrong to prefer the others? Of course it doesn't. But the point is, it's not just that we have good reasons to prefer the eggs from the chicken, which comes from, has a nice life, rather than the one which is in a bit of a cage. Um, it's not just that we have a preference for it, even if it doesn't taste so good. I think all the, the psychology and research that has gone into this shows that our experiences are altered by what we believe and know about it. You know, the, it does genuinely taste better to us when we believe something has come from a good source or has been cooked by someone for us. You know, there, there isn't, it's this kind of like illusion to believe that there is this thing called pure taste which goes on in our, in your, in our, in our mouth independent of all our knowledge and beliefs about it. In fact, 
our knowledge and belief is always changing the way we experience food. And it includes you know, how good it tastes. It really does even affect that. He's equally unsettling on organic food. It might be worse for you than you ever thought, but the fact that you think it's good actually makes it good for you. From our confusion with carbs, to the fact that the government health advice has barely changed in a century, and then discovering that the slightly overweight person who cooks a lot of food at home may actually have the best health outcomes, this book challenges what you think you know about nutrition and health. It's all done to be provocative, but to encourage us to think much more independently about how and why we eat in a philosophical way, which is summed up really usefully by Pollen. Now, I don't know if anyone knows the, the writer Michael Pollan, who writes about food, and he distilled his entire wisdom of food down to seven words, which is, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. All right? <laughs> the aim of Julian's book is to approach philosophy in a way that people can digest and use. It's not comfortable to hear your beliefs about food unpicked, but it is essential. And let's hear from Julian himself in conclusion. I'm really rubbish about this. Even Aristotle, I love Aristotle, he's a hero of my book. But he thought, you know, touch and taste were servile and brutish because they were connected with our, our baser instincts. Plato thought cookery was a, not a worthy art because it simply directed us towards the pleasure without thinking about the, the nature of that pleasure. Now, what I think I want to sort of show is that that's, that's actually not true. The pleasure of food we get from food is something which can be and should be deeply connected to our appreciation of all sorts of things, where it comes from, how it's produced, how good it is for us, etc, etc, etc. So you've heard from two of our Transmission Prize shortlist. But have we heard from the winner? We don't know that yet. If <laughs> <laughs> you can find out on the 12th of February at Foyer's Bookshop. And where can you get tickets, Helen? Uh, on the website, salon-london.com.